Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Evan Kerstel is one of Mark Andreessen's absolute favorite follows on Twitter. He's absolutely my favorite follow on Twitter, and frankly, he's a lot of people's favorite follow. But Evan is also a 20-year veteran of the wireless, broadband, cloud, and social space. And so as I begin to get into my research of the wireless industry, who better to talk to to help me frame that research? In this episode, Evan helps me map out just that, how the modern wireless industry developed, the various issues involved in the evolution of broadband, and frankly, where it all might be going. Please enjoy this conversation with Evan Kerstell. Evan Kerstell, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm a big fan of your Twitter feed, so it's a joy to actually connect and speak. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that that's a funny thing. I have told people before that if, you, if you're not a fan of Twitter, kind of don't understand how it works, your Twitter account, your feed is the number one that I would tell people to follow if they're interested in tech, because you're a, you're a Twitter superstar, man. Like, <laughs> Actually, let's, I want to ask you, let's start off with that. I'm curious to know what your what your workflow is in terms of you surface I don't know 30 50 100 articles a day like how what what's your workflow in in terms of sharing things to Twitter Yeah I'm pretty much a lunatic so <laughs> uh, so you know that's an accurate characterization No like most of us I mean the the the, the web and online is a, just a fascinating area for discovery and uh and insight and and you know reading and what twitter and social brings is a sharing so you don't just have to be alone and and discover all this stuff you can share it with your your comrades your followers if you will so the combination of of social and sharing is is just hugely interesting to me and i professionally i do that with clients you know in sort of telecom and it world and i my personal feed is just my own you know, bizarre set of interests that, that kind of uh, come together. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm curious just literally on the level of, do you have a, an RSS reader that you've, you've accumulated things uh, over time? Or it, like, do you hit the same publications every day? Or is it just you're just online all day and you're always reading stuff? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I have my favorite news readers and RSS feeds, as everyone does. You know, I find Prismatic really great. I use Nuzzle to kind of surface interesting stories, and then I have Google Alerts on on topics. And so it's 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 literally dozens of of different news readers. And so it's the stuff that gets my attention is just comes from all these different sources. Apple News is a great source of of really customized news now. So it's, it's, it's never ending. There's all kinds of new algorithms to find interesting, relevant stuff for, for you, you know, on, on social networks. So, well, again, if you're not following him, Evan Kerstel on, uh, on Twitter, number one, my number one follow, definitely. Um, well, thank you. And um, so let's, let's get a little bit of background on you. Um, you basically um, have a, an impressive 20 year career working in telecom and, and communications and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, I'm not asking for your entire CV, but just, you know, a, a, a general background of, of, of your career. 
Yeah, well, look, given that we're, we're talking about Internet history, we go back. I graduated uh, uh, college in 92. So that that's kind of sets the scene for where I started in technology professionally. And of course, when I was really active in my late teens, that, that's sort of the, the world in which I lived, you know, a little different than today. <laughs> And and you were you were studying electrical engineering in college, right? Yeah, I was a double E, and then really spent my career on the on the business side. So I, I never wrote any code that would compile properly, and I was you know terrible uh, engineer. So, but but if, I, I think a good business person. So I'm I'm happily healthy, happy how things worked out. And so you generally you've been on the sales side in terms of of um, implementing solutions for clients and like and like helping helping various clients uh, implement networks and things like that? Um, yeah, yeah. so uh, my career, I've done different things from sales or business development and alliances. These days, it's a lot of social media. So how to do social selling and how to uh, engage on social media and inbound marketing and all that good stuff. So it's always sort of sales and marketing focused, but in the tech space, because, you know, I'm a geek at heart. Well, what I'm really curious to talk to you about is, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to research um, – you know how the the wireless industry, especially, um, has come to come to the shape that it's in today. Um, and uh, you know, in terms of like cell phones, go back to you know the seventies and the early eighties and things like that. But I just stumbled across the other day. There's a famous story about how in the early eighties, AT and T commissioned McKinsey, um, the the consulting firm to find out if they should go into the cell phone business, into, into cellular. And McKinsey creates this report that says by the year 2000, some infinitesimally small number of people will actually uh, have cell phones, so it's not a big enough business for you, so they kind of don't go into that. So just from, from your knowledge of the industry, I'm curious to know, was it like the cable industry in the sense that the people that started – Cell cellular companies were they sort of cowboys, you know, in, independent guys, sort of like in the cable industry, or or were they the baby bells? Was it always a big industry uh, from the beginning? Well, it's interesting. We we should actually go one one step backward, which okay. is where where I I sort of started in tech in the paging infrastructure world. Okay, so in you know in the eighties and 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 even well into the nineties, paging was the big thing, and you know. Probably most people don't know what a pager looks like now, but these little devices everyone carried around, certainly professionally, and even a lot of kids carried pagers around, and that was how you sort of stayed in touch. Um, certainly business people, you know, you, you had your pager, and that was how the office got in touch with you. And so paging was really the, the, the big hot wireless fad before, of course, well before mobile caught on. And, and, and were uh, were those set were those networks set up by Baby Bells? Who 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 started? Oh yeah, them? it was very very entrepreneurial. I mean, you had some big national nationwide players, but you know anyone could go out and and buy a paging switch and and run a paging service in a city or town or even a hospital. And so, you know, paging was 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 it was quite an entrepreneurial industry early on. A lot of you know early innovators you know jumped into paging and 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 selling pagers and and as as sort of mom and pop shops so it's a really interesting uh world and sort of uh predated the whole cellular world which was also very much about small regional 
uh, players, uh, which there aren't many of these days. So right, so like, you have a few, but they've all been you know m- many of them have been snapped up, and they're few and far between. You know the independent carriers. So there is that parallel with the with the cable industry in the sense that it w- it started out mom and pop. It started out very very regional. Yeah, very decentralized. Um, y- you know, it was a small business, so it wasn't you know the scale wasn't there. And it was very much about the local shop. I mean, of course, there wasn't online ordering. It was all, you know, going into a local store, uh, you know, talking to a salesperson. So, um, uh, yeah, a diff- different world than today, for sure. And we have this vision from the 80s. You know, you remember in, in Wall Street, you have that scene of, of Michael Douglas on the beach talking on his cell phone <laughs> that at least in the for a long, long time, even into the 90s, um, uh, pagers having a having a car phone or a cell phone was was exclusively for rich people. Was that was that basically because it was so capital intensive to start up these networks that it had you they had to be able to charge u- users hundreds of dollars a month and, and things like that just to get it going, get it off the ground. Yeah, it was partly that. Partly the utility wasn't there. I mean, what's the value of carrying this thing around? If no, you know that that was a question mark. Partly. You know, these were analog services, so there was no, of course, no text or no data, no, you know, that, so really voice only and super expensive, you know, corporations, you know, largely didn't subsidize it or give it to employees. So, uh, you know, what, what changed all that was the emergence of, uh, of, of actually GSM. So I, I was living and working in Europe in 93 and got my first GSM phone. Uh, there were analog phones, but this was a GSM phone, mm-hmm. so I could use it outside. I was living and working in the UK. I could go to Europe and use it, and it was a Nokia phone. It was really, for what I, at the time, beautiful device, and you could get message, text messages, of course, and it was digital, so it was really clear, pretty much the same codec that we use today. And that was that was res- revolutionary, you know, invented in Europe, funny enough. So that's where... You know, the sort of uh, the mobile revolution started, at least. So, is is GSM is that the the um, the dividing is that the first truly digital technology taken away from just you know analog voice into into a digital? Yeah, I mean, analog cellular had been around a long time, as you mentioned, and there were even some great analog phones, and there was, of course, widespread analog service, but it was really crackly and had all kinds of weird uh, restrictions and requirements and. And uh, we were analog in the U.S., of course, much, much, much longer than the rest of the world. So people lived with analog, but, you know, digital uh, and the devices that, that were digital, GSM-based, were really much, much more attractive. And so, you know, that first wave of Europe was way ahead of us for, for, for quite a long time in digital telephony and GSM. And, you know, I always remember, you know, when I came back to the U.S. looking at Europe and they had all they always had the best phones and the best devices and services and you know, this is, of course, well before the iPhone or, or Android or any of these the smartphones. We're talking about dumb, dumb phones or flip phones. Um, uh, and so then CDMA came along and was sort of to rival GSM. And um, there was a big, this was a big war there. So there was a lot going on. It was, it was definitely the Wild West, you know, uh, and it still is. When you, when you talk about uh, the U.S. being behind what was going on in, in Europe and Asia in this technology, um, how much does the the breakup of AT and T in 1984 into into the the Baby Bell system? How much does that contribute 
was it were we behind because we were we were stuck under the AT&T umbrella for so long was it the breakup that sort of kick-started um North America's uh, development of this technology what what was the impact or role that that the AT&T breakup played in this yeah, well, there were different phenomenon going on. There was this this wireless revolution, which was kind of just bubbling up, uh, and then there was the the, the fixed telecom wireline network revolution, which was really changing the way you know this thing called broadband was going to be delivered, and and then the competitive uh, bell companies has uh, sprung from that. And so the, the, these sort of two worlds, wireless was very much embryonic, and then you of course had these huge uh, bell bell entities. Um, but really the consumer, you, you know, was yet to be impacted. I mean, yeah, you got some benefits from, you know, lower long distance costs and, you know, dial up started to be cheaper for, for the average consumer. And you had, you know, these different dial up services being launched, but still wireless was, was a way away for the average consumer. And so, um, kind of out of touch and, you know, the, you got to give it to the Europeans and Nokia and Ericsson and all these, these entities, which are kind of shadows of their former selves really took the lead in innovating with, with digital telephony back in the day. And, and Motorola as well, right? Yeah. Motorola was, uh, was a little bit late to the digital party. Mm. Um, you, you know, they weren't, they were certainly, you know, call them the inventor of the cell phone, but right. in terms of GSM and, uh, these digital networks, they, they were a little late to the party and, uh, and it was Qualcomm that really jumped in with with CDMA that kind of shook things up here. And that was that was quite quantum leap in terms of where where telephony was. Well, when when CDMA and and things like that come around, when when the switch to digital happens, from day one, are they envisioning a world where it's not just voice? It is going to be data that you, they're going to be able to push messaging and and you know information i mean this is before really the web so they're they're not envisioning maybe the web at first but my question is is when, as soon as they switch to digital it's not just um functionally better for for delivering phone calls do they see from day 1 that there there could be a whole new world a whole different business involved with with um mobile data yeah i think you know i think there was definitely there was some some early insight into that and there were definitely lots of pretty cool services that you could deliver over just text and low bit rate data. And there was a lot of, and there is to this day, a lot of really cool innovation around just messaging and, and uh, a lot of, of European companies took advantage of that. There were lots of cool text based services that were early web based services um, at the time, you know, just, you know, browsing the web with WAP, you know, this wireless access protocol where you got like, you know, low bit rate you know, data on your screen, you know, weather, sports scores. I mean, that, that was huge. No, no one could have imagined anything like that. So, you, you, you know, the, definitely the, 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 uh, the direction was set. I mean, I don't think anyone could have imagined the explosion. Well, so few people did, but at that time it was just hard to imagine um, what we have today. Um, and this was well before smartphones, well before even, you know, the sort of Microsoft's, uh, attempted intelligent operating systems before palm i mean palm right in my eyes really opened the door to what you could do with uh web uh based services on mobile i, I was just going to say that I, I feel like palm is is that key inflection point in the late 90s when um you know they called them pdas and things like that at the time but actually i i just ran across what what a lot of people call the first smartphone which which ibm developed it was something called simon 
in 92 or 93 or something. I'm going to do a piece on it uh, in a few weeks, I think. But um, so as is it just a question of like they're waiting for the devices and the hardware to to be good enough to make use of this network? Or were we waiting for the network? What's the chicken and an egg situation for um, for truly mobile data to start to take off? You know, it was it was the idea of applications. I think that 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 early on kind of drove uh, a lot of interest. Um, you know, it evolved from messaging, which really started to take off. You know, going back to paging, right? People started to get into messaging, and then with the early mobile phones, uh, uh, text messaging started to catch on. Although very very late in the U.S., not 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 till much later than Europe. And then we sort of evolved into okay, well, there there are actually apps before we called them apps. There were things you could load on your phone to get stuff done. And certainly Palm had a, they didn't have the app store concept the way we have today, but there were really cool apps you could download from your PC to your Palm pilot and your calendar and your PIM, you know, they called personal information management. And so all of a sudden there were really useful and productive things you could be doing on your phone uh, besides just messaging, including, you know, some, some corporate email. Um, And so all of a sudden these things started to get really, really useful uh, for for much more people, and that that's kind of how the evolution went, at least in my recollection. And when when these um, these next generation um, network you know protocols and systems and stuff um, get dreamed up, it's it's a it's a decades long process, right? I mean, wh- what we would call four G today was probably on the drawing board like fifteen years ago, and then it takes maybe a decade to to roll out. Um, you know, the actual physical infrastructure to make the, the network a reality. Um, is that, explain, explain to me that process. Like it starts out, like we're, we're hoping that 5G is coming down the road soon. Um, did they already know 10 years ago what 5G would be? And then it's about getting the whole industry on board. How does that process work? Well, I'm an outsider to it as well, but there are working groups that come together as part of various internet and and wireless bodies, and they have representation from industry and academia and other places. And they kind of sit in rooms and have meetings and conferences and and agree and vote on these these different standards. And the standards ever evolve, right, because they're constantly being extended and added to and fixed or patched or enhanced. And so... These standards bodies and GSM was the you know the big one that sort of that kicked off the whole wireless boom in my opinion, you know continues to this day with 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 its body and it continues to evolve. Um, but there are hundreds of them for di- different standards, different different technologies, and uh, you know the more successful ones are the ones that create things like the internet and uh, and telephony. So there mm-hmm. there are. They're ever-evolving standards. There are ever more standards bodies. I mean, there's something called the WebRTC group, which is how to do audio and video natively over the over the internet from your browser. I mean, mm-hmm. so there, these these standards, you know, get picked up by corporations who you know try to co-opt them or influence them. But you know, the best standards bodies have wide industry support. You know, across even competing vendors. Uh, who get together and for the common good and for their own good to to create uh, enhanced standards. And so, yeah, there's all, you know, to the uh, to the average consumer, they have no view of all these things that are going on. But that's kind of what these industry consortium standards bodies are all about. I'm going to ask a, a quick question that's totally going to uh, reveal my my lack of knowledge here. But 
on my iPhone today, is it still a separate system for when I make a call versus when I browse the web or is, is all of voice digital now? Is it all, is it all the same thing coming into my phone at this point? So we're not hundred percent there yet. There's something called Volte, which is voice over LTE, which is, uh, you may, you may have seen the buzzword. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And so Volte is what you're describing, which is, you know, voice over packet, much like the, you know, the internet, when you wake more making a Skype call is voice over the internet. Uh, Volte isn't, isn't ubiquitous, so it's being rolled out. Many carriers have adopted it more outside the U.S. than in the U.S. Verizon is is aggressively ro- moving to Volte, and so yeah, so the world is is moving in that direction. Everything takes a long time with with wireless because you have lots of leg- legacy systems to integrate to, and you have lots of legacy phones to support, and all that kind of thing. But that that's the direction is you know universal IP end to end. I had. Um... Last month or two months ago, I had Avram Miller of uh, Intel on to talk about the, the birth of commercial broadband. And, and so we're switching from, from wireless to, to wired uh, internet access at this point, just real briefly. He described it sort of like that um, the cable companies sort of discovered that they were in this great new business because it turned out that they had already wired all of the homes and all the businesses and all the buildings in, in, in the world for, for this cable service that turned out could also deliver broadband internet. Um, I'm curious, you know, obviously the, the phone companies had already wired everyone's homes the same way, but they were copper wires. And so it wasn't, it wasn't broadband. Is, is that just the accident as well that, that copper wires just weren't as good at delivering broadband and that's why the cable companies ended up winning delivering us all our 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 home internet and our business internet or was there an opportunity for the 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 phone companies to to be broadband providers i know you know there was all sorts of other you know in between technologies and things like that but was it just accidental that the cable companies ended up with this business and the and the phone companies didn't well yeah that's a great point and and a great question Again, it's not just a function of technology, though. There are various regulatory and and political and sort of economic reasons why cable won or is winning in many ways that that are related to technology, but many are not. The fact that they're basically monopolies in in many ways in in many of the areas they serve, so um, uh, they they sort of own the the right to to deliver services to the customer. Technology-wise, you know, there's there's compression that's getting ever better. So, you know, when you say copper ne- isn't necessarily as fast as, as cable, that's true generally. But there are some new technologies that'll 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 enhance delivery of services over copper. And so there's this you know this leapfrogging that that people are trying to do. And then there's wireless access coming into play. You know, 5G should should deliver you know cable-like speeds. Um, to average consumers possibly. So, you know, there's technology leapfrogging technology and there's regulatory issues that impact, you know, how any given provider functions uh, in Europe. I mean, uh, cable is not necessarily faster than the internet delivered by the phone company. And so a lot of this comes down to the regulatory environment in addition to just the technology choices. So um, I do want to get into uh, what 5G will be, but so are you saying that the possibility exists that within the next decade or two, um, wireless will be able to deliver to me um, the internet at, at faster speeds than, than cable will, and so possibly I might choose to make my 
my wireless provider be my main internet provider? So it's a question mark. I mean, there, there are questions whether there's enough spectrum for that. And, you know, people wonder about that. There's a question if fiber to the home isn't the right solution. Um, I think it depends where you live in the world. I mean, if you're in an emerging or developing country, there may be very good reasons why 4G or 5G be, becomes your, your broadband service, you know, in terms of uh, having to deploy lots of, of fiber, the feasibility of that. Um, and then there, there, there may be good reasons why you don't even care. I mean, AT&T may decide, okay, you're, you're going to get service delivered through wireless because it's cheaper for us, you know, than, than putting in mm-hmm. uh, fiber to your, to your home or to your building. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure where things will go. I'm keeping an open mind. Well, so um, what, what is 5G um and what what does it promise, and and how soon is it coming? Yeah, I, I haven't been paying close attention just because it's really, I think, pretty far away in terms of uh, real world applications. I mean, it's really promising to deliver, um, you know, cable like speeds ubiquitously, um, with much better. Uh, sort of air interfaces and we have today much better spectrum usage, much better densities and the ability to support, you know, the internet of things, which has all kinds of unique requirements for power and, and diversity and stuff. So, you know, the scientists and engineers and, and, and techs that are part of these standards bodies are in, sitting in, you know, back, back in back rooms, you know, figuring out these standards. And, um, but I, I think it's a way before I, I've, I will see any services at least you know a number of years before we'll see services mm-hmm. based on 5g um so the the internet of things is you know the, the big buzzword of the day and it sort of reminds me kind of since we're talking about it of of getting the internet on your cell phone every you know people were talking about it for years and then all of a sudden it was there and everyone was doing it and you know, in the same way that that um, video uh, on the web was going to be huge, and it never was, never was, never was, and then YouTube happened, and and you know now it's everywhere. Um, the so the Internet of Things, the idea that basically everything will have a sensor, everything will be connected, everything will be smart, um, is you mentioned. You know, even just um, the bandwidth, not the bandwidth, but the um, spectrum issues. Um, what are the things that are keeping um, the Internet of Things from suddenly being everywhere like like the YouTube moment for video? Yeah, no, it's an interesting, it's fascinating area. I love to follow Internet of Things topics on Twitter. You know, as, as you alluded to earlier, the Wild West uh, uh, scenario, it's very much that there's just hundreds of vendors, you know, thousands of applications many, many different uh, standards overlapping and competing. So there's not one Internet of Things to rule them all. You know, there's a Internet of many different things, uh, and, and some of which will overlap and compete and be incompatible with other things. And so, you know, every major Internet player, including Amazon, just this week announced their sort of back end for the Internet of Things is going to have a different or a novel approach. And so the market and the technology and the end of the day, customers are going to have to sort out what works and doesn't work. And you'll see, um, you know, dominant players emerge from this whole 
scenario, much like we saw with mobile and computing and other uh, operating systems and other things. So what it means is we're going to be just overwhelmed by choices of products and services and devices and on the back end, all kinds of uh, uh, back end systems to support Internet of Things. And it's going to be tough to, uh, you know, for consumers, it's going to be tough for vendors and service providers to figure out what, what to do in this space. And and we're, we're all going to adopt it in, in our own ways. You know, with consumers, we'll have certain devices and, and home uh, at home and on our bodies that are of interest. Uh, enterprises have different needs. You know, industrial applications will have, you know, be really cool ways that in just different industries can leverage these this, these sensors and this these new networks. And it'll it'll, it'll evolve in a very chaotic chaotic way. So what you're saying is is in in the way that you know we all agreed at one point. Okay, TCP/IP is how you're going to connect computers to talk to each other on the internet. We don't have that one standard yet that we've all agreed upon to get all these devices and sensors and things to talk to each other yet. Yeah, I mean TCP/IP will still be the backbone for, for for many of these networks, but but in terms of some of the higher level higher layers of the stack, if you will, for for controlling, managing, deploying, uh, securing all these things that are out there. There's, there's many different frameworks and approaches and, uh, you know, every vendor is touting, you know, whether it's a Cisco with their various solutions or whether it's at Apple with HomeKit. I mean, everyone's touting their different approach or family, of uh, products or standards to, to, a, to, uh, to go after this market. And some of them, you know, there's there's many different standards, not all of which are open. Many are proprietary. And so, yeah, it's, it's the beauty of the free market. It's going to have to sort itself out. Uh, okay, two more sort of um, big picture prognostication sort of questions. Um, I was curious and surprised, I think, like almost everyone was, about um, Dell's announcement that they were going to uh, try to buy EMC. Um, is this... Is this all about another big buzzword about, is this about the cloud? Is this about the cloud eating all of these um, uh, big storage companies, the IBMs of the world? Um, is, 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 is the cloud taking over big computing and, and, and really shaking up the picture there? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think uh, it, it, you know, the Dell EMC potential merger is more about Dell and EMC's challenges and opportunities than the wider market. I mean, Dell needs to, you know, they're in this weird position, I think, as a private company. Now they need, they need to figure out what they're going to be when they grow up, you know, and they're having, you know, there's tremendous pressure from, from all quarters for them. And, you know, whether it's the consumer side with Apple and devices or whether it's the cloud side on Amazon, I mean, they're, they're being really squeezed. And so this is a way for them to sort of maybe beef up um, real quick to be able to play as, as a dominant enterprise player and uh, join up with, you know, another sort of similarly sized uh, enterprise powerhouse. I'm actually personally not a big fan of these mega mergers. I just think if you look at the track record, they just really don't work in terms of people and processes and innovation and products. It's just so disruptive, but uh, more power to them. We'll see. That's funny because again, cloud is another buzzword that you've heard for, for years and years and years, you know, going back to things like, you know, Opsware and, and stuff like that. And 
Um, and then I guess just kind of quietly, Amazon went out and made it happen, and everyone's sort of waking up to the idea that, oh, this is this is today. <laughs> this isn't in, this isn't five years down the road anymore. Like it's it's happening now, and and Amazon kind of, without us anyone noticing, kind of is owning it. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And if you're a startup with a great idea, or you're the next Snapchat or Instagram, you're going to build that you know, killer app on the cloud and probably in a, you know, an Amazon cloud instance. So, you know, it's never been a better opportunity for startups to build really cool stuff, really cool services. And it's never been easier, cheaper, faster to do than, than with cloud. And so Amazon is just killing it with all these startups who are building these services, video services, uh, apps, sites you know leveraging that infrastructure i mean you can you can build stuff with a, a handful of engineers that would have taken you teams of 100 in just just a few years ago that's all about the cloud uh, my final question uh because you're such a twitter fan like i am um i wonder if everyone's got their medium piece about um you know what jack dorsey needs to do how Twitter needs to evolve. I, I would be curious to know your take on what you think, how you think Twitter should evolve and what it should be when it grows up. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of ensuring Twitter stays as it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm a different audience than the wall street investor who's looking for growth and he's looking for the great, you know, the, the, the masses to adopt it. I mean, I'd love Twitter to, to be what what I use it for, which is a B2B platform, a place for meeting new people and discovering new stuff. I'm afraid it's turning into, you know, another Facebook, right? which Wall Street wants and loves, of course, because everyone loves Facebook and the growth story there. Um, but that, that, that would make me sad. <laughs> so I'd like to see more, uh, you know, more communities, may, maybe more communities cultivated or curated around industries uh, I, don't, I don't really see that happening they, they they're doing the big consumer push for the masses and and so be it so we'll all have to just uh, use twitter as we as as we were i have this theory that i i mean i'm i i agree with you that you know maybe in a more perfect world wall street will would get that twitter can do just fine with only a hundred 200 300 million you know active users as long as they're the right active users you know what i mean but wall street seems to want you know a billion and a half active users like facebook has but my theory is kind of even if wall street doesn't understand that is there a possibility that that twitter is just at its basic unit a, a utility sort of in the way that email is you know what i mean if there was one company that had the patent on email and owned email would, wouldn't they be sort of the same sort of company that Twitter is, like, you know, struggling to monetize and um, there's not a page to go to like there is with Facebook. There's more, you know, apps on your phone and things like that. What do you think about that, that maybe Twitter is just a utility and not really a great company? Well, I think I think Twitter honestly would, would do better as a private company. I mean, the the way they're now as a public company having to uh, to report and to to manage expectations is pretty tough for them. And they have a really unique, uh, odd sort of product. And it doesn't loan itself well to, uh, to being a public company. Um, you know, I think really there's, there's no better way out there to discover and meet 
new people than Twitter. And I use, I use Facebook, I use LinkedIn, I use all these other services. And so, you know, that, that is, that is unique. And so it's, yeah, it's a utility, it's a communications platform, but it's also a discovery platform. And I think that they need to think about ways to make it even a better way to find and meet and connect with, with new people and really amp up the social side and not just turn it into, you know, another news reader. So that's, that's what I'm thinking. So you're definitely not on the side of uh, exploding the 140 character limit. You know, the limit I, I think is is both attractive as well as frustrating from time to time. So uh, I don't have strong views on it. I think it would be nice to make messaging and sharing easier. You know, direct messaging is, mm-hmm. still, is still a mess. Um, you know, it's not a good messaging platform as such. And so if they were to make it more utility in terms of messaging, you know, more like a, like an iMessage or, you know, like a Snapchat and just in terms of messaging, I think it would really, really powerful. I'd love to use Twitter as utility just to connect and communicate with, with people I know. And it's, I do that, but it's not the best for that. Well, um, Evan, uh, Crystal, thank you for, um, helping me think through all, all these, all these ideas. Um, do you want to, um, uh, plug anything or I, 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 I'm going to say again, if you are not following Evan Kirstel on, on Twitter, you have to do it. Uh, but I don't know if, uh, do you have a, a webpage or, or anything else that you wanted to turn people onto? No, the beauty of Twitter is I, you know, no more websites, you mm-hmm, know, it's just, mm-hmm. let's, let's go to our, let's meet on social. So at Evan, that's E-V-A-N-K-I-R-S-T-E-L. I'll catch you on Twitter. Well, Evan, uh, thanks, thanks again for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's been fun. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great Internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.